the boards in front of the 200. Dr. Grayson, Sedestin are challenging and better loosen up on the extreme outside. Sedestin and Benedict have come away. They're fighting it out. Better loosen up on the extreme outside is roaring clear and better loosen up wins the Sajano. Sedestin second. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Pride's Easy Feed. The upcoming Summer Cup on Boxing Day is one of the oldest races on the Randwick calendar, making its debut in 1890 with Stockwell as the inaugural winner. The first few editions were over 13 furlongs. It was run over a mile and a half for 60 years before going to 2,000 metres in 2013. The Summer Cup has had Group 3 status since 1979. Prize money is up $50,000 this year to a quarter of a million. Some outstanding stayers have won the race on the way to greater heights. A great horse called Carioca was the 1952 winner on his way to wins in the Sydney Cup and Metropolitan the following year. Baystone won the Summer Cup in 56 and the Melbourne Cup two years later. Duo won the Summer Cup in 1967, more than a year after his wins in the Newcastle Cup and Metropolitan, as well as a third placing to Galilee in the Melbourne Cup. The Summer Cup of 1976 was Ming Dynasty's first major win on his way to two Australian Cups, two Caulfield Cups, a Metropolitan and a reputation as one of the most popular horses in the country. In 1984, Rising Prince competed completed the Villiers Summer Cup double and the following year he won the Cox Plate with Kevin Langby on board. In 1988, the Summer Cup was the fifth of 20 wins for the amazing Superimpose with Shane Dye in the saddle. These are just some of the big name winners of a race that has been part and parcel of Boxing Day in Sydney since 1890. I've known many people over the years who can only be described as racing tragics. Those who love a punt, those who love the horses, those who hero-worship their favourite jockeys and trainers, those who love the romance and mystique of the turf, those who read every word they can find about racing in the newspapers and on the internet. I've had several conversations lately with a bloke who qualifies under every one of those categories. His name is Wayne Peake, He's a 63-year-old retired father of two who still lives in the Sydney locality in which he has spent his entire life. His love of racing lay dormant until the day in 1968 when his grandfather took him to a Kembla Grange race meeting. This was the day the obsession started. This was the day he knew his fascination with racing would only grow. The best way for Wayne to share his passion with others was to hone his journalistic skills and write about racing and the people who make it tick. He studied English language and history at the University of Sydney. In 2005, he obtained the degree Doctor of Philosophy from the University of Western Sydney for a dissertation on unregistered proprietary horse racing in Sydney. Inspired by the works of his literary heroes, P.G. Woodhouse, Banjo Patterson and Damon Runyon, he developed a style which has enabled him to write four books. We'll talk about the first three a little later. In this podcast, we're going to tell you about his most recent. It embraces 472 pages, complemented by a portfolio of wonderful photos – and it's called Sydney Racing 
in the 1970s. For those who were there, it's a wonderful trip down memory lane. For those racing buffs who followed, it's like opening a treasure chest. Wayne Peake, congratulations, mate, on completing your magnum opus. It's a masterpiece. Thank you very much, John. Great to talk, mate. Can you recall the moment when you knew you had to recapture the highlights of that magic decade? Uh, it probably came to me when I was working in News Limited in the editorial library in the mid-'90s. Um, I used to pop down to the, what they call them, the newspaper morgue and look at old copies of Sportsman's and, and uh, Sunday Mirrors and and so on and, and just look at um, the race meetings that um, – that I attended in the 1970s and when look back and think fondly of the winners I'd backed and less fondly of the photo finishes I'd lost in, which were numerous. Mm. Um, and I started to make, make some notes, uh, started to record some statistics about attendances, uh, tur- uh, turnovers and, and uh, so on. And, and, and it occurred to me that I got so much enjoyment out of, out of that simple mm. pleasure that I thought, well, well, there's probably, probably other people who would get a similar pleasure from it. So I started thinking about mm. writing this book mm. and extend it from the statistics and the um the just the, the, the information that which appears in the last chapter of the book um to some pinups of the my favorite people from that era. Uh, and then also uh, a chapter about the experience of going racing on a Saturday and how wonderful it was. And then some information about the race courses, um the, the Sydney race courses that survived to the nineteen seventies. And the provincial courses as well, because I love to go to them, mm. uh, and that formed another chapter. Um, and uh, and there was another one, um, a companion to the horses that raced in that decade. Not only the good horses, but also the mm. bad horses and the inconsistent horses, but the ones that people who were there in that era would remember and probably get a bit of a chuckle out of um, from recalling them, like horses like Cernami and mm. Hal of Ricky and Big Butch and Butch Cassidy and so on. Mm. Give or take a month or two. How long did it take before you knew you were ready to go to print? Uh, I started uh, writing it up in um, 2016. Um, so it went to print, obviously, this year. So what's that, uh, six, seven years, um, basically, mm. in the writing? Mm. To appreciate how anybody could commit to such a monumental task, we really need to track your journey from scratch. You're a native of Panania. And you're the son of Jack Peake, who was obviously the quintessential Aussie character. Yeah, he's a bit of a legend around this area. He still is Pitney Point, um, Hurstful, um, Peakhurst, where he came from. Um, he was a, uh, a bon vivant, <laughs> lived yeah. life for the moment, uh, liked, a, liked a beer, a smoke. He was a truck driver. He was a uh, garbo. He worked on the old sanitary pans for his cousin out of uh, Peakhurst, um, and did a, did a lot of things, a lot of anecdotes, um, which lent themselves to storytelling. He was a great um, raconteur. Mm. He didn't. He, he didn't. He reckoned he couldn't read or write, which I didn't ever believe. But um, it suited <laughs> his purposes. <laughs> yeah. But he he walked into a pub, John. Um, he hadn't been before, and, and within half an hour, he'd have a circle of uh, blokes standing around listening to his yeah his his tales. So he was just magnetic uh, personality. Yeah, born entertainer. Yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah. He um he um he didn't live too long, but he lived hard and uh, in, enjoyed every moment of it, as he always said. Mm. Your interest in racing was obviously bubbling under the surface on that fateful day when you were coming back to Sydney with your parents and grandparents 
after a South Coast holiday. I think it was Pop who noticed that the Kembla Grange races were on that day and after a very brief family discussion, the decision was made to wheel right in there. Was that your first time ever on a racetrack? It was. Um, I actually pointed out to him there was a billboard coming up from the south coast on the highway there. It said, Kembla Grange, next race meeting today. And I'm like, Whoa. Mm-hmm. So I pointed out the pop, and um, yeah, he was a racing man from way back. So he turned to mum and uh, Nan, who were in the um, the back the back seat of the sedan, which he used to call it the second row of the mobile barrier. Did he? Um, <laughs> so he, he turned them, and he quickly convinced them um, that what we should do is pop into Kembla Grange, and so we did. Uh, it was a Saturday. Mm-hmm. They just resumed Saturday um, meetings that year. It was 1968 or 69, probably 68. Um, mm-hmm. Very small fields initially, um, but I, I walked on. I thought, wow, what a wonderful place with this massive greensward. You know, Campbell's about two or 300 acres, and this old grandstand in the middle of it that was built in 1912, I found out later on when Campbell mm-hmm. opened. Uh, it was like a giant cubby house. Uh, it was ra- rackety, it was ramshackle, it was ready to fall down, but we – Mm. We scrambled over it all day, and every time the races um, were on, I'd walk, run down to the uh, fence and watch the jockeys go out, and um, after a couple of races, they started winking at me and, mm. you know, <laughs> wondering what was going on, this little fella uh, hanging around. Mm. Pretty sure Norm, Norm Munsey rode that day. Um, Did he? But, yeah. Yeah. But uh, I was just uh, I was just uh, uh, enthralled by the whole thing. Um, Pop, unfortunately, didn't back a winner. I don't think a favourite one all day that day. So um, he wasn't very happy um, with me on the way back, and he made some appropriate comments about my unhealthy um, uh, interest in racing. <laughs> <laughs> well, from that point on, you were totally consumed with the sport: newspapers, magazines, television, radio, and if you had to pick the single greatest influence on your early years. I'm sure you'll nominate the great broadcaster, Ken Howard. Now, not only did Ken fire the imaginations of budding young race callers, myself included, but he must have been responsible for bringing thousands of people to the races. He made it sound so good, Wayne. Yeah. Yeah, I first heard Ken Howard um, in the um, the beer garden of the Pasto Park Hotel. Um, my pop dad is set up there on a Saturday afternoon and he had this big transistor radio like a brick mm-hmm. it was in a little leather jacket um, we always admired it very much but um he set that up and he, and ken Howard would be belting out of that that uh, maximum volume and you know coin horses like time and tide and um mm-hmm. we'd be sitting there uh absorbing ken howard and blue bow lemonade simultaneously and it was like the ancient paradise as i thought you know what could be better than this um mm-hmm. just and, he, and and you imagine i mean i'd never seen at that stage of race live but um Ken Howard, um, I think you or maybe Cliff Carey said he uh, he could turn a um, Canterbury maiden into a Homeric struggle. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so it was just uh, – and he was such – the voice was so unique um, mm. and, and the cadence, the timbre of his voice was just amazingly appealing. Um, yeah, strong, yeah. brassy voice, wasn't it? Uh, it, was, it was like nothing I'd ever heard. And, of course, his voice in those days was this – Familiar, in, in, at least in New South Wales, and most of Australia is, is the Prime Minister's Robert Menzies. Mm-hmm. Maybe even more so in New South Wales. He was instantaneously recognisable. Uh, he did, as you know, um, better than me, uh, so many ads 
and the uh, voiceovers for the movie tone and Cine Sound newsreels at the, the mm. theatre. Mm. So he was ubiquitous um, in, in, um, in Australian popular culture. And he, they, whenever they wanted to conjure up images of a um, Sydney pub on a Saturday afternoon and things like, you know, uh, mm. they're a weird mob, their movie. And um, my name is Magooley, the television show that always have Ken Howard um, in the background just to create that ambience. Yeah, Ken would make a cameo appearance quite often. He was also a familiar face on Channel 9 in that era with regular segments on the news, on World of Sport, and he was the anchor man on a famous Saturday morning program called The Clarence the Clocker Show. Came on at 10 o'clock on the dot, and you never missed it, you tell me. No, um, no I, was, I started, how it came about, I was um, on a Saturday morning, I was um, in bed, and um, tell, someone had the television on, there was a, 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 a trumpet call, you know, a fanfare. Um, and I thought it was Rin Tin Tin, which was my favourite show at the time, because this always started with, the, with a fanfare. But when I got up, it was actually Brian Howard, mm. uh, Telefilms. And he was they used to replay the, the, the Harold Park Trots from the previous night on Saturday morning. Mm. So when I started watching, I said, oh, what's with that place with all the lights and everything? And, then I, and I left the television on. And next up came, as you said, uh, Ken Howard and Clarence the Clock were in this really bizarre um, film uh, clip for the opening where they were wandering around the scraping sheds at, um, <laughs> at Ramwick with his outsized binoculars yeah. and outsized um, microphone <laughs> and yeah. all these girls dressed as jockets running around. I, I, you know, it, was, it was very intriguing. So, you know, mm. I just left it on and watched it and that was, you know, that was it. I was um, fascinated and, 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 and um, you know, attached to that show every week thereafter. It's only a matter of weeks now to the 50th anniversary of Ken's last call at Randwick on New Year's Eve 1973. Mm. I was standing right beside him on the day, Wayne, as he called that last race. It was an occasion of great emotion for Ken and for all of those around him, Ray Warren and myself included, and all of the media people who crowded into the box to watch him call that last race. It's 50 Mm. years ago and it seems like yesterday. Yeah, I remember listening to it, um, of course, at the time. But um, I hadn't hadn't been to the races, or I had been to the races at Wembley, but only the once. So, uh, yeah, it was an amazing thing. And then, of course, he didn't last long after that, as you know. He um, he moved up to you know, Bucket Heads, I think. Um, did a bit of fishing and a bit of bowls, I think. But um, he um, he um, I think he was um, sixty three when he died. Um, it was only three. Oh, yes. Yeah. He was yeah. very young, and yeah. his retirement lasted under three years, Wayne. He finished yeah. on New Year's Eve, 73, and he passed in October 1976 from cardiac arrest in his home at Nambucca Heads. You gave him a very noble title in the 60s and 70s, which you highlight in the book. You called him the Emissary of the Racing Gods. Wayne, I can tell you he would have been very touched by that. I'm glad to hear it, but that's, that's exactly what he was because he conveyed the um, – it was like he was a messenger from Olympus, you know, from mm. Greek mythology, uh, sharing what was happening in these those hallowed places with the the common the commonest, the, 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 the common man uh, listening on the radio. Um, mm. So it, it was just a, a wonderful thing that he did for so many people. Um, um, people who were ill, um, you know, who couldn't get out of the house, housewives, to, 
um, who couldn't, you know, when at that time and in that era and were sort of tied to the, the sink almost. So um, he he brought racing to all those people, um, and his his um, contribution is just astonishing. Mm. Another media figure to have a similar impact on you in that era was the famous racing writer Bert Lilly, who died in 1996, age 77. Now, Bert's career embraced associations with the Old Smiths Weekly, with the Daily Mirror, and finally the Sydney Morning Herald. And not only was Bert Lilly a master of the written word, but he had a deep understanding of the racing game. And most importantly, he was one journalist who had a deep love of the thoroughbred. Is it any wonder his work was legendary? Did you ever get to meet him? No, I never met him, um, John. He was, um, yeah, as you say, he, he died um, some time before. Um, I had much contact with uh, people in racing. As I, as I pointed out, I was just a race goer. I had no connection at all, really, with uh, journalists or race callers or anyone. I was just one of the many people that went to the races um, and admired all those people from afar, really. So... Uh, much as I would have loved to have met him, I, I didn't. Um, I only really had contact um, with journalists um, from about the early 2000s when I, um, uh, Max Presnell, st- read some of my stuff mm. and um, gave it a, a spruik in the um, City Morning Herald. And, um, and through him, I got a good contact with people like um, Bob Charlie and and and, um, mm. and Robbie Waterhouse. So, um, yeah, that's a bird I, I didn't meet. Uh, at all, but I would have loved to. And I admired his work so much, mm. um, as you mentioned, not only just for um, uh, his uh, his daily stories, but also you know the backstage of racing on Sundays and and, he, and his um, around the studs. And he and he just loved everything about his craft. I, I think he even enjoyed the the, um, uh, the the mundane task of ringing stables to get jockeys you know, for the for the Friday press. Um, mm. Everything about racing just delighted him. Um, yeah. And he had more connections, I think, in racing than than anyone. He was, I know, he was great mates with um, Tommy Smith. Uh, he broke more stories than than anyone. Never um, never got out scooped. I think hardly or hardly ever. You've already mentioned Max Presnell, who was one of Bert Lilly's stable mates at the Sydney Morning Herald. Yeah, Max's unique tales of the turf are still being enjoyed by his many fans. You were absolutely chuffed when this modern day Damon Runyon agreed to write a foreword to your book, and it is vintage personal. Yeah, it was very kind of him um, in his busy schedule, but he, yeah, he responded generously, as he always always does. And I, I described um, Max, I think, at different points in the book as a bon, bon vivant, which he is, but also as a flaneur. A flaneur is an interesting French word for people who wander around places observing what's going on, you know, and he, that's what Max did in the, in the racing mm. Uh, well, he and Bert um, used to, and then some of the other uh, journalists, including Alan Spears, used to do a thing on in the Sunday Herald called uh, Potpourri. So it was Warwick Farm, it'd be Warwick Farm Potpourri, Rosehill Potpourri, mm. and they just had little snippets of behind this, you know, the interesting, quirky stuff, which informed me a great deal. And I used a lot of the, the copy from from that um, column um, in this book. Yeah, uh, especially in the uh, in the second volume, which hopefully will be out in a couple of years, of stories about trainers and jockeys. Um, but yeah, a wonderful source. Um, but uh, Max and, and Bert be, behind the scenes um, information. I actually went through all of Bert's columns uh, from 1970 to 1979, 
uh, in preparation research for this book um, and also um, some of the other uh, journalists, but mainly mainly Bert, uh, to get background information. And I did the same with Turf Monthly and, and, and Racetrack. I went for every issue um, that was published in the 1970s and there was a lot of good stuff, especially by Cliff Carey, um, Aaron Rodgers, um, Graham Clark. You know, I was the... The behind-the-scenes stuff that I was mainly interested in. Mm, you loved it. You formed an attachment to many of the great horses who graced the sensational 70s, but there was one about whom you became obsessive. <clears throat> what generated your admiration for that magnificent thoroughbred tales? Uh, again, John, it was my pop um, in the um, spring of 1969, um, at that same, same said Padstow Park Hotel, uh, the Rosewell Cup 1969, Tails won that race. It's the same day, by the way, that uh, Balmain upset South Sydney in the uh, in that memorable grand final, rugby <laughs> grand final. And Pop backed um, uh, Tails in the Rosewell Cup and he and won, of course, and he came out with bags and bags of um, Smith's chicken chips and mm. blue bay lemonade, and we said, oh, geez, this is good. Mm. Um, so, you know, he won quite a lot of money on it. And then he backed it again the next week and won the STC Cup. Same thing happened, and then won the Metropolitan. That was a Monday, so we went at the pub. We you know, we did all right in the next few days. And then he, he, he was following tails right through that spring. The only time he didn't back him was in the um, Cox Plate. I think he ran seventh, but then he came out. He won the Coongie Handicap before that in the, mm. in the Hoffman Handicap. And so it was equal favourite for the Melbourne Cup um, with Big Falou. And and Pop had basically reinvested everything he'd won through that um, spring into the Melbourne Cup. And, and of course, you know what happened in the Melbourne Cup. Um, Big Falou was um, was nobbled. Yeah. And Tails ended up seven or four favourite and ran seventh. Uh, but years later, it, it emerged that the same fellow that had nobbled um, Big Falou had also got to Tails. Um, somehow, but he mustn't have got him as, to the same degree as um, Big Falou because Tails still managed to race. And again, the circumstances ran a very admirable seventh, um, full of whatever he was full of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, thank goodness he did manage to run a place in the Melbourne Cup at his third attempt. He ran yeah. third to Silver Knight in 1971 covered himself in glory, but it appeared, Wayne, didn't it, that he just couldn't quite get the two miles? Well, I, yeah, I don't agree with you there, John. Uh, <laughs> I know that was, you've, um, you've written that, and most, a lot of people have, but um, um, he, he, he definitely got, maybe in his, as a four-year-old and as a five-year-old, he, he didn't, but that last season, which was the best season of his career, that Melbourne Cup, he came from barrier 23 um, and was three and four wide the whole way, got beat by two pretty handy horses in Silver Nine and Igloo, and they ran something like 3 minutes 19.5 or something. So Tails was only two half lengths behind him. So mm. the time that Tails ran would have won 95% of Melbourne Cups ran to that, that time. Yeah, um, good point, yeah. Yeah, and there are – he's a Sydney Cup of the following year, just before he beat Gunston in the Queen Elizabeth. He had a big weight and it was a really heavy track and both he and Gunston were sort of – Disadvantaged by the conditions, um, but he still ran, I think he ran fourth, um, uh, beat Gunston home. And then in the Brisbane Cup that year, he um, he ran into Mode. He was given Mode about three stone. Uh, Mode was a very good horse, good uh, filly. 
And there was an upset going down the side of the track. Uh, over a horse ran, Drackety Kid, I think it was called, and ran off and tails followed it. Mm-hmm. Got excited and ended up being in front with about five furlongs to go, uh, carrying nine, six or something like that. Mm-hmm. And only mode beat him home. So I, I think that um, certainly by his six and seven year, yeah, his final season, he could run two miles. Um, and he did it better than just about every other horse in the, in the country. Um, so I think yeah, that um, that uh, I wouldn't call it a myth, but that, that perception that he didn't get two miles is probably not really justified. Yeah, well, you've explained it well, mate, and I'll, I'll give you four points for that. Now, <laughs> Wayne, Tails eventually went to stud. He went back to Queensland where mm-hmm. he retired to the Canning Down stud. And uh, a lot of breeding aficionados are still of the opinion that his opportunities were short of what he deserved. Yeah, well, Seb Barnes, um, his owner, um, was a member of parliament, a minister, uh, and a, more or less a hobby hobby farmer or ho- hobby um, stud manager. Uh, he didn't really promote tails uh, very much in the in the media. He set a fairly high um, uh, fee, two thousand dollars was a lot of money in those days. Um, and he didn't. He, he, uh, Bert Lilly used to tell him off all the time for not, you know, giving mm. tails a fair crack of the whip as a as a stallion, um, but he only served eight mares his first season, I think 16 thereafter, um, and they weren't great. He didn't get any great horses. He got a lot of, a lot of winners. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, probably the best horse he had was a horse called Architect that won oh, seven or eight races up in, in Brisbane in the late 70s. But, um, yeah, he uh, it's, it's probably unfair to uh, judge him as a as a failure as a, as a side because he had so few opportunities. Mm. He's a wonderful horse. He raced 79 times. He had a busy career, 23 wins, 14 placings. And when he retired in 1972, as you'd be well aware, he was second only to Tullock as Australia's highest stakes earner. Perhaps the most heartfelt of all the tributes uh, paid to Tails that you've mentioned in your book is the fact that Bert Lilly, who had a great eye for a thoroughbred, once described him as the most magnificent horse I've ever seen. Yeah, that's, that's high praise from from Bert, and Bert, of course, was very, was obsessed with Burnborough. Um, so to to um, to, um, to give that that description to Tails says a lot, and he was a magnificent magnificent horse. Um, I, I haven't seen why, but I mean, obviously, I've seen a lot of. Images of him, um, almost 17 hands, um, didn't have a white hair on his body. He was a t- total chestnut. Mm-hmm. From, uh, the whole, you know, Sammy Howard pointed that out, how unusual it was. Extremely intelligent. Um, Sammy Howard reckoned that he, he knew when um, Dale at Saving came in to allow for it. He, was, he went for a walk every um, afternoon at half past two. Mm-hmm. And when Dale, Dale at Saving came in, um, and an hour was added or taken off, whichever it is. Mm. Um, he he would allow for that and appear because he didn't. They, he could run around the um, stables of Pat Murray's um, yard. Uh, they didn't box him. He was like mm. a like a like a um, like a watchdog. Mm. So he could run out and Sammy Howard be there, and he'd, he'd allow for daylight saving according to Sammy. So you know, mm. take that. <laughs> yeah, many, he, um, many budding young racing fanatics, as you were. Adopt a jockey who becomes their favourite. Mm. Now, in your case, it was the very likeable and very talented Kevin Moses. 
who yeah. retired in 2001 at age 48 with 2,300 winners on his CV, and that included 241 outside of Australia. He won 21 Group 1s. He won three Sydney Jockeys Premierships. You recognised his potential very early on. Yeah, he was... Um he was the um, he was the opponent to Neville Begg, as you know, and uh, he took a while to get um, going. Begg um, kept him in under wraps for a while, but he started to come good in the early nineteen seventies and ride more. Uh, he rode a horse called Queen of Babylon and ran third one day at Rose Hill, I think, at fifty to one. Then he won his uh, well, his first win was a horse called Singing Sands at Rose Hill. Then he won a string of races on a horse called Babylonia, um, the Jack Green trains for the Arabs. The Arabs are just the Australian racing and breeding stables that just um, just appeared, um, and they, their colours were black and yellow diamonds, the, the colours of the now Arrowfields. Mm. But um, I had a girl that I was rather admired in those days that used to wear black and yellow pullover, um, very comely girl, and and they, they were the same colours as Moses was rode most of the time. So that sort of <laughs> <laughs> that attracted my attention, and he, and, and I just and the name was Mo, Moses. I was sounding a bit like Mozart, which is, I was a bit obsessed with when, mm. as a young boy. Um, so it just led from there, and I just started. But once Tails finished racing, I'd start listening for Moses and never look in the, in the form guide on a Friday and um, and look out for him. And of course, he was the champion apprentice of 1973. Mm. Had a very good year the following year. Um, and then, like a lot of champion apprentices or apprentices in general, the, the, the rides seemed to start to evaporate, and he slowly slipped off the um, premiership top 10. Um, by about 1976, 1977, he was yeah, he was back 20th, 21st, 22nd. He was well, well often, and he he didn't get many rides outside the Beg stable, and he didn't get many rides except in the two and three old races for some reason. Uh, he never he rarely rode in the Welders, um, mm. the Stain races, which was odd because later on, as he became such an acknowledged um, genius as a, a, a raider of uh, in, of horses in Stain races, so yes, he, he um, did. Mm. He had a bit of a hard time of it in the in the mid to late seventies, which is when I was following him, of course, primarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a good uh, had good success in nineteen seventy six. He won the uh, Hobart Villain Keegan and the and the Doncaster and Authentic Air, yeah, but um, mm-hmm. he uh, he had a tough time of it, unremarkably given his later um, accomplishments. And he broke a leg, I think, in nineteen seventy nine. Broke a thigh in seventy nine mm-hmm. early, and then he was out for most of the year. Mm. Um, but he, he um, I remember he rode a horse called King's Ideal in the uh, 1979 Villiers uh, for Neville Begg um, and it started from the outside barrier it would have been 20 I suppose and um, he somehow got into the, into the 1-1 and, mm. and won very well and I remember that he and um, the owner offered uh, promised he and Neville Begg half of the prize money each if it won so he was on a good incentive mm. <laughs> um, so uh, that was he was um, that seemed to be a, a turning point in his career, his local career, and of course, ne- the next year was uh, 1980, and that was the year of Dark Eclipse's um, Golden Slipper. That's right, and he was lucky to be on it because Ron Quinton had the pick between Dark Eclipse and Fiance. He pulled the wrong rein. Kevin Moses jumped onto Dark Eclipse, and nobody could have ridden a better in the year of 1980. Stand by there for a moment, Wayne. We're going to pause to clear a commitment on the podcast. When we come back, we'll talk about your three previous books. 
Do any of your horses struggle to finish their feeds during a racing preparation? Have you been unhappy with the way they look on race day? Do what many other trainers do with those finicky horses and introduce them to Pride's easy performance by stimulating their appetites with Pride's highly palatable set recipe feed you might find they're not leaving a flake in their feed bits. Correct nutrition helps racehorses to deal with the stresses of racing and training. It helps them to get that elusive win when they're in the right race and most importantly, helps them to bounce back after the event. Pride's Easy Performance provides the ultimate muscle fuel to help horses get to the line while helping them to maintain inner health. Pride's Easy Performance, the complete nutritional feed for equine performance athletes. My special guest is author Wayne Peake, whose new book is now uh, available, Sydney Racing in the 1970s, and for somebody from that particular era or those that are curious about that particular era, this is a must. Now, Wayne, a quick mention of the three previous books, Sydney's Pony Racecourses, A History of a Long Forgotten Era, Uh, The Gambler's Ghost and Other Racing Oddities, That's a fictional collection of humorous short racing stories and I'm intrigued by the title of the third one, Wanderin' Star, Wild Jack Peak of Peakhurst, which of course is a tribute to your dad. Where did the Wanderin' Star reference come from? Um, When my dad was in his cups, which he was quite often, especially on weekends when he wasn't working, um, he used to sing a song called Wandering Star, which... um, Fans of, uh, of Lee Marvin would know from the film Paint Your Wagon, um, which was the song that Lee Marvin sang uh, when he was sitting on the wagon himself mm-hmm. uh, in, in a distinctive rasping voice, which my father's voice closely resembled. Um, so it was, that was his theme song, Wandering Star, and he was a bit <laughs> of a wanderer in his youth, got around up to the back blocks of New South Wales, you know, as a, uh, a rouse about and a, 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 you know, running a sawmill, uh, driving trucks, so um, when we decided to write a book about him, that seemed a very appropriate st- uh, title for the book. You drew information from many different sources during your research. I think Western Sydney University made you an adjunct fellow and that gave you access to the amazing Sydney Morning Herald Library. And uh, I guess that's when you read much of the Bert Lilly material. That's correct, yeah. Uh, it was um, when I retired, the, the university made me an adjunct fellow, as you mentioned, and that gave me access to all of their library um, resources, including that archive um, and their their um, things like Photoshop and InDesign um, for, for the layout of the book. So uh, I couldn't have finished it without the support of the university, which was I very much appreciated. The photographs right through the book, Wayne, are a wonderful trip down memory lane. Many black and white some colour, you must have had a lot of help in accessing them. Yeah, well, um, I had help uh, from the um, staff of the um, ATC Heritage Centre at Ramick Racecourse. Um, they they um, pointed me in the direction of a lot of good things. Um, the, the images, so, uh, the bigger ones are mainly from Mark Bradley and um, Martin King, the two uh Preeminent um, photographers of the 1970s and beyond. Uh, they very generously uh, allowed me access to their images. Um, 
the days of Ken Howard and the, and the Panorama of Warwick Farm um, from the uh, State Library, uh, mm-hmm. who uh, allowed copyright um, reproduction. And there were others. The one that intrigues me, probably of all the images in there, is the photo of um, Alfred Hitchcock at um, Warwick Farm. Who uh, jumped off the page? He, he yeah. was out here promoting his great movie, Psycho. That's right. I, I, I said in the book, it's too bad it wasn't the birds because the, the horse that won the race was called Black Hawk. Goodness, uh, turned yeah. <laughs> but it, it must be the most incongruous photo I've ever seen of Alfred Hitchcock at what, you know, at their old Warwick Farm. You know, it just, <laughs> it always struck me as really bizarre uh, and, uh, and a wonderful um, juxtaposition of a uh, person that you would just would associate with a Sydney suburban race course. Yeah, worth buying the book just to look at that photo. It's a beauty. <laughs> I love the one of a tiny little strapper called Ron Duffersey leading the great mayor, maybe Mahal, around the enclosure at Randwick. Yeah, that's a beauty, isn't it? And I, I like the um, the extent to which his um, jeans have been stitched up. Uh, <laughs> they've been folded about six inches by a log of it to, um, so, mm-hmm. so that they don't drag in the mud. But, yeah, it's a great, great photo. Of, um, it took me a while to recognise him um, and who it was, but then I did a bit of research, and, of course, he was the strapper of um, Navy Mahal. And that, oh, he um, worked for Bart. He, his indentures yeah. were transferred to Bart about halfway through his apprenticeship. There are many scenes from Sydney racecourses in the early part of the 20th century, Wayne, the mm. crowds were unbelievable. Yeah, um, th- yeah, that's right. The, the, the photo of um, Rose Hill, uh, the overhead photo, uh, um, astonishes me. Uh, not just because of the extent of the, um, the extent to which it captures the physical features of Rose Hill at that time, but also the crowd, um, especially in the ledger. You can see the crowd in the ledger is probably double in the paddock. And I guess you know it was nineteen thirty or thereabouts, so the depression would have been. Um, Biting to uh, into people's pockets, but um, yeah, the, the one of Warwick Farm is similar. Enormous crowds there. Um, I didn't use any of the photos of the pony race courses, but you, in those you'll see. And during the First World War, um, the crowd at Kensington one day was so intense that the, the one bloke said he had to step outside the race course to get a breath of there because it, it was just yeah claustrophobic. Standing, st- standing room only, literally. So yeah, mm. the, those, those images are really. Um, uh, good images to, to show the popularity of um, of racing, especially in that era. But even in the seventies, um, I'd, I'd um, you know track track the um, crowds, and they didn't diminish more than a thousand or so um, mm. from the start of the seventies till the end. And even though people like Cliff Carey were, were bemoaning drops in attendance as old minor compared to what happened in the nineteen eighties, so and, mm. and, it, and it didn't matter where the races were on either. Um, Warwick Farm, Canterbury, even when they had their rare Saturday meetings in Rose Hill, they were all about the same 17,000, 18,000 um, for a regular Saturday. Obviously, the carnival meetings were different. But the, yeah, the, it, you mean the, in the middle of winter, seventeen or 18,000 on a winter Saturday. Yeah, Warwick Farm occasionally there was wet, wet, would lose half of that. But um, it, the, the point I wanted to make was that the, the people went to the races wherever they were on at. It didn't matter. They didn't care much. Mm. If it was Ramick, Razzle, Warwick Farm, well, people had a special familiarity, fondness for Warwick Farm, or at mm. least in my crowd. But, yeah, they, used to to the, they the people went to the races every Saturday, basically. Mm. I love the coloured photo of the field turning out of the straight in a harness race at the old Richmond grass trotting track at Londonderry. The Richmond trots were still going up to 1997 
And mm. the crowds there, Wayne, in the 60s and 70s were massive. Yeah, they were, I only got there on a Tuesday, John. I never made it on a Saturday. And, and um, when the Tom Austin Cup was on, I think it was a public holiday Monday, mm-hmm. they were enormous. But, um, yeah, I, I was going to university one day and posted a letter from my mum and this, that Holden pulled up and a door swung open like something out of the Untouchables. The voice <laughs> said, get in. I said, well, where are we yeah. going? I said, Richmond Trice. Mate's got a horse in, so we went up there. It was March. It was just before the city car- uh, Galbs Carnival, and um, I only had a couple of bucks on me, but we went the wrong way and ended up at Hawkesbury Racecourse by mistake. But anyway, we eventually got there, and I and I hadn't been there before, and it, it was just this beautiful setting in, in this um, you know sylvan uh, paddock. Uh, and I said I said of later of it that the sunshine just dripped down like honey. Uh, it was an incredible. Uh, a few flies there too, by the way. But um, mm. uh, and of course, as you know, the track was right-handed, grass uphill and a straight. Um, he wanted to be in with the leaders uh, coming to the turn. Otherwise, he had a, a, his prospects were fairly dim. But it was just a wonderful experience. And I, mm. I wish that, I wish they were still racing there. I wish there were still standing starts at the trots. Yeah, um, I know but, that. Yeah, yeah. You were an absolute devotee of the Warwick Farm Racecourse, which was mm. your home track virtually. Mm. And you once described it, and I think you use the quote in the book somewhere, as a temple of worship, <laughs> which is high praise indeed. Now, Wayne, there's one little thing about modern-day programming that gets right up your nose. The fact that time-honoured races like the Chipping Norton Stakes, the Liverpool City Cup and the Surround Stakes and now run elsewhere. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, well, as you know, John, they don't race even at one, at once a year on a Saturday at Warwick Farm. So all of those races were gradually slip, um, slipped away from Warwick Farm and sent primarily to Ram, of course, under the, in the AJC era. Um, yeah, it's uh, the whole issue of Warwick Farm is when I, <laughs> I find very disturbing. The last time I was there, you, you couldn't get a beer on tap, uh, couldn't use cash at the bar. And there was hardly anyone there because it was a Wednesday and it was benchmark races. So there's not much of an incentive to, um, for people to go to Warwick Farm. Um, and it's surrounded by the pokey palaces like Rizzi Workers and Mount Pritchard and so on. So there's, the, Warwick Farm's had done it tough. hasn't had much support. But, um, yeah, the Liverpool City Cup, Tom Brazel championed that race in the early 70s and turned it into a major event to the extent that Mm. But it um, got the, the cover of the race book in, in the, rather than the Chippy Norton Stakes run the same day. Um, and the other one you didn't mention is the Guy Walter Stakes, um, is, which is <laughs> Guy Walter absolutely adored Warwick Farm, so there should mm. be more meetings there and a story. The Chippy Norton should be run there, the Warwick Stakes should be run there. And, of course, the Guy Walter Stakes, ironically, is now run at Randwick, not Warwick Farm. So, mm. you know, that's some... Some very eminent people of journalistic achievement have submitted previews to your book, people like Bob Charlie, Ken Callender, Jim Haynes, John Holloway, Dr Andrew Lemon, Jessica Owers and William Rutledge. Now, I use the last sentence of a preview by Jessica Owers as a small example. Jessica says, The book is dripping with detail and delightful in its storytelling. This new book is a living memory gem. A fine endorsement, Wayne, from a fine writer. Yeah, Jessica is a brilliant writer. Her two, her two books, um, 
on Shannon and, and Peter Pan, um, rightly uh, winners of the Bill Whittaker Award in each of their years of publication. Uh, sensational uh, writer. I hope she's got something coming out soon um, uh, because I'll be the first to buy it. And a wonderful person too, and then such a, um, a complete career in equestrianism and writing. Yes. Well, the book is a, a weighty tome, as they say in literary circles. It's called Sydney Racing in the 1970s, An Illustrated Companion, Volume 1. Does this mean there could be a volume two? Yes. <laughs> if I can sell a few of these ones, John, yes. Um, so there'll be a volume two, um, which you will feature quite prominently, and all, most of the other people you've mentioned, um, including Max Brezel and um, Bert, uh, Bertley's probably had enough about Bert. But, uh, yeah, and, uh, Bill Casey and all the other journalists, all the other race callers, um, trainers and jockeys, there'll be Biogs along the lines of those little biogs of the horses that were in volume one. So hopefully that will um, come to pass and um, in maybe in 2025 or 2026. Have you started work on it? Yes, I have. In fact, um, it's probably half written because I was about three years or maybe two years ago when I was working on this book, it occurred to me that the, it was going to be about 1,200 pages long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it might not be published till about 2028. Um, so I decided to split it in half along the lines that you see in the current in the first volume, um, and wait for the uh, for the second volume after this was uh, printed and published and and, and marketed and so on. So uh, yeah, it's, it's largely written, um, but I hope that I can bring that um, to the to, to the race goers. Um, Library's sometime soon. Down the track, as they say. Well, it's not yet in bookshops, but for now, people can go to your website for all details regarding purchase. And that website is simply waynepeak.com.au and press the first icon. Now, the cost is $79.95 plus $10 postage. And, Wayne, what an ideal Christmas gift it is for those who shared your love of racing in that magical decade and for the younger fans who were curious about it. I know a few blokes who love it. Yeah, I've got a few blokes I know who love it too. And it'll certainly fill up a stocking, (laughs) as you point out. It's a big thing, um, quite heavy. But, yeah, uh, it's really – people have thanked me for providing an easy solution to Christmas presents this year for those – and there's many of them still out there, as you know, race goers and race lovers. Um, it really is an ideal Christmas present. I said in the introduction that your literary heroes have always been P.G. Woodhouse, Banjo, of course, and Damon Runyard, of course. And I can see a little bit of all three in the pages of this brilliant new book. Six and a half years of hard work have paid off. Well done. Thanks so much, John. And thanks for joining us on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. The upcoming Summer Cup on Boxing Day 
is one of the oldest races on the Randwick calendar, making its debut in 1890 with Stockwell as the inaugural winner. The first few editions were over 13 furlongs. It was run over a mile and a half for 60 years before going to 2,000 metres in 2013. The Summer Cup has had Group 3 status since 1979. Prize money is up $50,000 this year to a quarter of a million. Some outstanding stayers have won the race on their way to greater heights. A great horse called Carioca was the 1952 winner on his way to wins in the Sydney Cup and Metropolitan the following year. Baystone won the Summer Cup in 56 and the Melbourne Cup two years later. Duo won the Summer Cup in 1967, more than a year after his wins in the Newcastle Cup and Metropolitan, as well as a third placing to Galilee in the Melbourne Cup. The Summer Cup of 1976 was Ming Dynasty's first major win on his way to two Australian Cups, two Caulfield Cups, a Metropolitan and a reputation as one of the most popular horses in the country. In 1984, Rising Prince completed the Villiers Summer Cup double and the following year he won the Cox Plate with Kevin Langby on board. In 1988, the Summer Cup was the fifth of 20 wins for the amazing Superimpose with Shane Dye in the saddle. These are just some of the big name winners of a race that has been part and parcel of Boxing Day in Sydney since 1890.